Let's get into our message today. Um, we've been talking about the biggest buts in the Bible. These three-letter word, B-U-T, where life seems to be heading one direction. The verse, the text seems to be heading one direction. And then there's this giant reverse that's played. And it flips things. And there's this 180-degree turn where now things are heading in this complete opposite direction. Uh, last week, we got to look into the story of Noah, and, and we discovered that God remembers, that even when it seems that we're forgotten, even when it seems that we're overlooked, even when it seems that, that time has, has passed, and maybe God's forgotten, God always remembers his people. God always remembers his plan. God always remembers his promise. Today we're going to continue in the book of Genesis, but we're going to fast forward quite a bit from that passage in Genesis 6 through 9. The second half of the book of Genesis is really the story of one family. Not even really the second half. It starts in like chapter 11. So the, the vast majority of the book of Genesis is the story of one family. It's what the Jews would call the patriarchs. Starts with Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then Jacob's children, including Joseph. So we see four generations from Genesis 11 to Genesis 50, the last chapter of the book of Genesis. And in this story of this family, and if you read through the story, you might identify with this story because even though this story is these family has been chosen by God and is greatly used by God, this family is jacked up. Uh, if you read, this, this is not the perfect family. They didn't get chosen because they had it all together. Um, isn't it amazing that God uses people that don't have it together? And the reality is he has to because none of us do. And so if he's going to use anybody, he's got to use broken people. Well, this is a very broken family in the book of Genesis that God uses in, in mighty ways ultimately to, to create the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, and ultimately to bring Jesus, the Messiah, to the world through this family. And so we're going to go through their story a little bit today. There's three different instances in this story of this one family where we find one of these big butts of the Bible. Three different spots where one of these butts come out. And what's amazing is each of them kind of revolve around a similar theme. Uh, and so I want to talk to you today about, in part three, about the protective butts. Not protecting your butt, but the protective butts. Uh, and I think you'll see where we're going as we read through. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 31 with probably a less familiar passage to some of us. Um, we're looking here at the story of Jacob. Jacob, if you're not familiar, was the younger of two sons, two twins. And yet he was the one that God chose to, to bless. He was the one that God chose to favor. And so Jacob, again, very jacked up, very messed up person. He, he deceived his brother, his father, his family, uh, and his brother decided, I'm going to kill you. And so Jacob has to run away from home, and he flees to the north, and he goes to, to his uncle Laban's home. And in Genesis 31, we're going to pick up the story as he's there with his uncle Laban. And, and he serves his uncle Laban. He works for his uncle Laban. In fact, Jacob falls in love, and this is just another level of the story. He falls in love with his cousin, Rachel. Uh, and he decides, I want to marry this girl. And back in that point in time, genetics had not mutated to the point where marrying your cousin was taboo or, or harmful. Uh, so this was actually normal back then. Uh, and so he decides, hey, I, I want to marry Rachel. And Laban says, sure, you can marry Rachel, but you got to work for me for seven years. Uh, and so Jacob says, you know what? 
It's worth it. She's beautiful. She's spectacular. So Jacob works for his uncle for seven years. Uh, his uncle puts a, a veil on his daughter and brings her out to the marriage, to the wedding. Uh, and Jacob marries his cousin, except it's the wrong cousin. He doesn't marry Rachel. It turns out he marries Leah, and Leah was not so good looking. Uh, Leah, the, Leah had, had some, something wrong with her eyes. Uh, and so Jacob, when he found out that he had been deceived into marrying the wrong cousin, was, of course, very angry. And Laban says, well, in, in our tradition, the oldest daughter has to marry first. And so I had to give you Leah. But, but if you really want to marry Rachel, I'll let you marry Rachel. You just got to work seven more years. Uh, and so Jacob really in love. Uh, says, you know what? It's worth another seven years for Rachel. And so he chooses to be married or to, to work for seven more years. This time he actually gets to marry her on the front end uh, with the commitment to seven years. So why does all that matter? Well, in the midst of, of Laban's deception, Laban's deceit, uh, he also starts deceiving Jacob with his wages. Jacob, in working for him, is supposed to be paid in sheep, uh, he's supposed to be building his own wealth, his own flock, his own family so that he can move out and, and take his wives and their children, which if you know, they start making lots of babies. Uh, they have 12 sons eventually, uh, and I believe one daughter, Dinah. Uh, and so they, he, he's cheated by his uncle multiple times. His uncle says, hey, I'm going to give you this, and then gives him something else. Uh, and we're going to pick up the story here in verse 3 in chapter 31. It says, then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So where is God sending him? He's sending him back to the promised land, back to the place that he has been chased out of, where he was risking his life to be there. He says, I'm sending you to your home. Verse 4, so Jacob sent word to Rachel and reluctantly to Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He also said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. So we see this, this first little mini butt. It's not the one we're emphasizing, but there's one right here. The God of my father's been with me even though your father has been cheating me. His attitude to me has not been good. Uh, then it says, verse 6, you know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, I've done everything that I've been asked to do. I've been keeping his flocks and watching over his sheep with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God, everybody say, but God. But God did not permit him to harm me. Ten times I've been lied to. Ten times I've been deceived. Ten times I was not paid what I was promised to be paid. And yet, in the midst of this, God chose to protect me. So often we look at, at people as our source. We look at our boss as our source. We look at those, those customers as our source or whoever's signing that paycheck as our source. And the reality is God is our source. Man, God is the one taking care of us. God is the one providing for us. God is the one looking out for us. And so he says, look, even though your dad has had some evil plans towards me, even though he has mistreated me and abused me over and over and over again, God did not permit him to harm me. Verse 8, he said, if he said the speckled ones will be your wages, what are the speckled ones? He's talking about the sheep. So, so Laban says, look, all the... All the sheep that are born with spots, those are the ones that you get to keep because none of them were being born with spots. None of them had spots, so of course they're not going to reproduce any with spots. Uh, then what happened? 
that all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And so then he changed it, and he said, hey, if the streaked ones will be your wages, and who's ever seen a sheep with a stripe, right? Like, not supposed to be striped sheep. That's not a thing. Uh, but then all of a sudden, what happened? Then all the young were streaked young, all the flocks. So God has taken away your father's livestock. The cheater lost, and the one who was God's child is prospered and blessed, and he's given them to me. Here's what I want you to see. We're going to see three different principles today of what happens when man does something, when man lets us down, when man doesn't come through, when man doesn't show up, and what God does in the midst of it. The first one is this. Man cheats and deceives, but God protects. Man cheats and man deceives, but God protects. I don't know what ways you have been cheated. I don't know what ways you've been deceived. But I know this, none of it was a surprise to my God. Man, when we get cheated, when we get deceived, when we get betrayed, that hurts. We don't see it coming, and, and, and we're like, man, I can't even process these emotions. How could this person do this to me? How could my uncle do this to me, right? This isn't just a person who cheated him. This is family. This is not even just his uncle. This is, of course, a messed up family, but it's also his father-in-law times two, right? Like, like, there's a lot of reasons why Laban should be good to Jacob, and yet the brokenness of man, the fallenness of man, the messed upness of man causes him to, to cheat his own nephew, his own son-in-law, the father of his grandchildren, we see this so often, don't we? I mean, many of us come from very broken, messed up families. We've been betrayed. We've been lied to. We've been cheated. I, I see sometimes in, in my position as pastor where a, a father or mother will pass away and, and all of a sudden the fight for the estate. And siblings start lying and cheating, and uncles, and aunts, and, and you just see the, the ugliness of humanity that comes out as family fights over stuff rather than for one another. And this happened all the way back. All the way back to the beginning, we see family cheating and deceiving one another. But the good news is this. In the midst of that, God's protection is not affected. If God has chosen to favor you, if he's chosen to bless you, if he's chosen to look out for you, there's nothing man can do that can change that. You need to know that. You need to know that's why you can be empowered to stand on your integrity in the workplace when everybody else at your job lies and cheats and steals. You can do it God's way because God's going to protect you. It's why you know you can be bold to stand for your faith and to share your faith, even if that means higher-ups are going to look on you unfavorably, even if it means there's going to be repercussions or consequences, because we know that man cannot harm us. Man cannot deceive us. Man cannot cheat us if God has chosen to protect us. We need to be emboldened by this principle that God has my back. He's looking out for me. In fact, would you just say that? Would you say, God's got my back? Would you speak that over your life? Teresa just said it. She says, say it like you mean it. Come on. God has got my back. And if God's got my back, 
you can require the only thing I get paid with is striped sheep and I'm going to get rich. I'm going to get wealthy. If God's got my back, you can cheat the system and change the rules and do everything to harm me and it's going to do nothing to me because God is looking out for me. Amen? Man cheats and deceives, but God protects. Fast forward to the next generation. That man, Jacob, had 12 kids. Excuse me, 13 kids, 12 sons. You're probably familiar. They're the 12 tribes of Israel. But the story begins kind of ugly. There's this one son who is favored. His name is Joseph. Why does Jacob favor Joseph? Joseph is the oldest son of Rachel. This is the woman he's in love with. This is the woman he worked 14 years to be able to marry. He waited a long time to make a baby with Rachel. And so he's got this son. And even though he's got many older sons and sons from, from multiple he had concubines. And again, this, this is not all beautiful the way God designed it. This is the brokenness of man. Okay? So he's got all these kids from all these women, but Joseph's his favorite. And so you know the story, right? He goes out and he gets Joseph this coat of many colors to, to favor him publicly. Like, man, this is, this is the one. This is the one that I've waited for. This is the child that was promised. This is the one I worked 14 years for. He's my favorite. And what does that favor on Joseph do? It causes the others to be jealous. And to be fair to the brothers, it probably would have done the same thing to any of us, right? If we ever saw our sibling get treated, most, all of us are convinced there's a sibling that mom and dad love more than us, right? Like everybody, in a, there, there is no favorite child. Everybody is the least favorite child of their parents. Like you talk to anybody and they'll tell you how come the brother and sister, they, they got away with this. They got to do this. Mom and dad love them more, right? Uh, and, and so... It's easy to look at Joseph's brothers and say, man, they did some awful stuff, and they did. But it's also easy to relate, uh, man, because he clearly had chosen Joseph as the favorite. And so what do they do? They, they go out, and they, number one, they want to kill him. They decide not to kill him. There was one brother, I believe it was Reuben, who talked them into, hey, we're not going to kill him. We're just going to throw him in this pit, and, and then we'll sell him into slavery. Uh, and so rather than destroy his life, they sell him to Egyptian slave traders. And Joseph gets carried away from his family, away from his father, uh, in, into slavery. And then they bring back the coat, and they spread lamb's blood on the coat. And they told Dad, something awful happened. A wild animal ate your son. And so Jacob's heart is broken as he weeps and mourns for his lost son. What's happening here? Well, again, this is a historical story, but it's also a foreshadow. What is this? The blood of the lamb that ends up covering over the sins. And we're going to see grace extended to these awful, horrific brothers at the end of the story. So, so we're catching up. We, Joseph goes to Egypt. Again, you know the story. He first serves in Potiphar's house. And what happens? He prospers. Everywhere Joseph goes, he's favored. He's not just daddy's favorite. He's everybody's favorite. Everywhere he goes, he rises to the top. Why? Because God's hand's on him. Because God has chosen to use Joseph. And Joseph's a man of character. He's a man of integrity. And so Potiphar's wife throws herself at Joseph one day while Potiphar's away. And Joseph does the right thing and flees from that sexual immorality. He runs away. She grabs his cloak and she presents the cloak to her husband because she's scorned. And she says, look, he tried to rape me. And so Joseph goes from slavery to prison. Now he's thrown 
into the dungeon. And as he's in the dungeon, he's joined by, by other men who had served the king because Potiphar was a, a high-ranking official to the pharaoh. And he has the, the baker and the butler of the king who, who come there, and he interprets some dreams for them because God favors him and gives him the interpretation. And everything that Joseph says from the dreams comes true. And years later, word gets back to Pharaoh because Pharaoh has a dream that bothers him. He's like, well, there's a guy in the dungeon who can interpret dreams. And what happened while Joseph was in the dungeon? By the way, he rose to second in command in the prison while he was in prison. Like, that just everywhere he goes, he becomes number two. It's just the way that it works. And so they go and, and they call for Joseph, and they bring Joseph out of the prison, and the Pharaoh tells him his dream, and Joseph accurately interprets the dream. He says, hey, there's going to be seven years of prosperity, seven years of, of, of man, wealth, seven years where, where everything grows and it prospers, and we've got more than enough seven years of abundance. And they're going to be followed by seven years of famine. And so we need to prepare now for the years of famine down the road. Side note, I think as Americans, we usually walk in abundance, but we don't do a good job preparing for the famine. We're not good at preparing for a day when the economy doesn't look as good as it does at a certain time. And so when the economy goes bad like it has recently, we freak out. And I think a lot of that's our responsibility because we've not blocked out the biblical principle of being ready for a day when there's not as much prosperity. That's not anything to do with today's message, but you can take that for free, right? Just file that one away. Uh, so Pharaoh brings Joseph out of prison and puts him second in command of the kingdom and says, you're in charge of preparing us for the famine. Whatever you say goes. Whatever decision you make economically with our grains, with our crops, with our livestock, we're going to do that so that we can be prepared. And Egypt is so prepared for the famine that when the famine hits, it hits the whole region, not just Egypt, that every other nation is sending people to Egypt to beg for food. And who shows up? The ten brothers who chose to sell their brother into slavery. Why 10? Well, the youngest brother, Benjamin, which was Joseph's full brother, he was now the favorite. Jacob said, I, I can't stand to lose Benjamin the way that I lost Joseph. And so Ben's staying with me. I'm not sending him to Egypt, but I'm sending the rest of you scumbags. And he sends <laughs> the 10 of them to Egypt to go get food for the family, and he keeps Benjamin at home. So the 10 show up, and again, you probably know the story, but they don't recognize Joseph. Joseph's look has changed. His appearance has changed. This is years into the future. Uh, and they appear before the brother that they sold into slavery. And they beg him for food to protect their father and their brother who's back home. And so long story short, Joseph provides, Egypt provides. Eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. The brothers throw themselves down in fear because rightfully Joseph could call for them to be killed, and, and he had the power to do it. But Joseph extends grace. Again, this picture of Jesus, he extends grace to the people who tried to kill him. To those who tried to destroy him, he extends forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, he says, hey, I want you to move down here with me. Man, there's, there's, no, there's nothing in the land of Canaan right now. There's nothing in the promised land for our family. Bring dad. Bring Benjamin. Bring them all. Come down uh, and, and move here. And so they do. They move to Egypt, and they're blessed, and they're prospered. And 400 years later, that's why the children of Israel are in slavery in Egypt, because things change. Uh, and God still has a plan. So why did I tell you all this? Well, to bring you to Genesis chapter 48, our next big but. In Genesis chapter 48, 
verse 21, Joseph and Jacob are having a conversation. And Jacob's name, by the way, also is Israel. And so in this passage, it actually refers to him as Israel. And Israel is preparing to die, and he's speaking blessings over his sons. In fact, blessings over his grandsons, as was the custom of a patriarch in those days. And so Jacob's life is coming to an end. And it says this in verse 21. Israel said to Joseph, Jacob said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. Imagine this. The father that you had had ripped away from you for 40 years. You'd lost so much time and so much experience with him, and, and, and now he's with you, and now he gets to see your kids grow up, and he gets to be involved in your life, and now, after all this has been taken away, he says, Joseph, I'm, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your father's. The reality is, all of us in this room, if we haven't experienced it yet, we will experience the loss of a loved one. A parent, a spouse, a child. In fact, we experience loss in many ways, not just in someone passing and going on to the next life, but, man, relationship is severed. Someone moves away. Someone gets imprisoned, right? We lose access to people in a number of ways, Sometimes people just leave. Sometimes people just decide they're done with us. And they don't want to pursue relationship anymore. They don't want to pour in and make the sacrifice that relationship requires. And so many of us have lost not just family relationships, but meaningful relationships. Deep friendships. People that we thought we could trust that were ride or die. And here's the second principle I want you to hold on today is that man leaves, but God remains. Man may leave. Men will come and men will go. And not just men, women too, right? Like I'm just using the, the generic. Uh, but if you can, it's all of us. We come and go. We're inconsistent. We're unfaithful. And we're temporary, at least on this earth. We come and we go. But God remains. I don't know who's left your life. I don't know who's disappeared, maybe fully and permanently, in the physical sense, or maybe just remove themselves from your life for whatever reason. Maybe, maybe, for, maybe you did something and they legitimately left, but it still leaves a hole. I need you to know this. Even when people are gone, God remains. Put, put that last verse back up for us if you don't mind. In Genesis chapter 48, Israel says to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. I'm not going to be here anymore. The, the role that I've played in your life, the encouragement I've been to you, the favor I've poured out on you, it's about to be gone. But you need to know this. God will be with you. Even when I'm not here, God is. Even when I can't be there for you, God will be. This is the God who promises I'll be the father to the fatherless. I'll be the friend to the friendless. I'm going to look out for orphans and widows. This is the God who shows up when people don't. I don't know what hole has been left in your life. I don't know what hole is coming up that you don't even foresee right now. Joseph probably wasn't ready for this conversation from his dad. I don't know how you're ever really ready for your parent to tell you, I'm about to die. But even though Joseph maybe wasn't prepared for this, God was. 
He says, I'm not going to let any good thing be removed from your life. Even if someone who's played an important role is no longer there, I'm going to fill that role. I'm going to fill those shoes. I'm going to make sure that everything that I've promised you, everything I've planned for you is coming to you regardless of who happens to be in your life or not. I don't know who all needs to hear that. But somebody needs to know that today. Even the absence of a person cannot cancel what God's plan is for your life. Amen? Man leaves, but God remains. That's where we're just a very, very small part in the story to Genesis chapter 50. This part is perhaps the, the most well-known of what I'm going to share with you this morning as we get to our third principle. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15 says this. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. So 48, he says, I'm going to die. By 50, he is dead. Now they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Check this out. Joseph's already forgiven them. Joseph's already extended grace to them. He's already moved them to his place in Egypt and cared for them and provided for them and looked out for them. Joseph's proven his character over the top by this point in time, but their guilt and their shame causes them to perceive something in your bro their brother that wasn't there. And so now that dad's gone, they think, well, maybe he was only looking out for us because he loved dad. Maybe he was just putting on a show for dad so that dad didn't have to grieve over his brothers or his sons sparring with one another again. So now, now we're in trouble. Now everything's going to fall apart. Verse 16. So they sent word, word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Your father, right? Like, <laughs> Don't forget what daddy said. 17, this is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Even Jacob thought that Joseph was still bitter. Even Jacob thought that his son still had a wound. And let's be honest, it would have been very justified for him too. He lost 40 years of his life. 40 years taken away that he didn't get to see his family, his father, his mother. He lost a lot. It would be very understandable in the natural for Joseph to absolutely harbor bitterness for what his brothers did to him. So dad prepares, says, hey, I want you to send this message to your brother when I'm dead. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. Verse 18, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. So this statement, we are your slaves, it takes me two places. First of all, obviously, it takes me back to what they did to him. It's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? Like, they sold him into slavery, and so now they realize the just and right punishment for their sin is for them to become slaves, too. But it also takes me to the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son returns to the father, he throws himself at daddy's feet, not on his relationship as father and son. He thinks the relationship has been invalidated. He just says, look, I'll be your servant. I'll work for you. You treat your servants better than, than what I've experienced out there in the world, so let me be your servant. And Joseph responds just, as the prodigal son, father does, as, the, as the, the master of the house does. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, 
don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Joseph understood that vengeance is God's. That whatever justice needs to be served to his brothers is not Joseph's to repay. I've taken my hands off of it, and I've put it in God's hands, and he can deal with you however he chooses to deal with you. But I'm not going to mess with God's plan. And then he says this, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God. You didn't make a silly mistake. He doesn't, he doesn't justify, hey, you guys were young, and you didn't know what you're doing. He says, look, you intended harm for me. You wanted me dead. You wanted me gone. You wanted me completely out of the picture. You intended to harm me. He doesn't water down the sin that's been done to him. He doesn't justify the pain that he's had to go through at the hands of his brothers. But he says this, but God. But God, this third biggest but. In fact, maybe my... my my other favorite big but in scripture, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. If you didn't betray me, if you didn't send me into slavery, if you didn't choose to harm me, the whole family would have starved because I wouldn't have been in Egypt with the power and the position to provide not just for my family but for many others. You see, when one of us chooses to honor God and walk in righteousness and integrity, it doesn't just bless our family. There's residual impact. There's residual blessing. That's why by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted because when we get it right, when we choose God's way, when we walk in forgiveness rather than bitterness, all kinds of people are blessed. You intended to harm me, but God had a different plan. In other words, God didn't choose for this to happen to Joseph. Joseph's brothers did. But God had a plan to work in the middle of it. Even when we don't see it, he's working. And so God intended it for good. Verse 21, so then don't be afraid. Not only do I forgive you, not only am I going to let this go, not only am I not going to kill you or make you my slaves, I'm going to provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. What is Joseph in this story? He's a type of Jesus. We're the ones who've betrayed. We're the ones who have intended evil. We're the ones who have, have walked out on the one we should love who could rightfully hold us to slavery, who could rightfully hold us to death, who could rightfully condemn us. But he chooses instead to say, don't be afraid. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide for your family. He reassures us. He speaks kindly to us. He brings us into his home. And he cares for us. That's the God that we serve. Thirdly, if Pastor Braden, if you'll come help me close this up. Man has evil intentions, but God uses them for our good and for his glory. I don't know what way you're being betrayed recently, right now. If it's a work situation, a family situation, I don't know who seems to be against you. But I know this. Even though you may not see it right now, God has a plan to use it for your good and for his glory. It took Joseph 40 years to see what God was doing when he got sold into slavery. 
40 years to get to the place where he could recognize, wow, if this hadn't happened, there'd have been nobody to care for my dad. My father would have died of starvation. There'd been nobody to care for me. I would have died of starvation. 40 years for him to realize this betrayal, this hurt, this tragedy that had been brought to him was actually for a greater purpose and for a greater good. When you're in the midst of being betrayed, it's hard to see your good and God's glory. It's hard to even fathom and imagine how this could possibly work out. And I'm not a prophet. I can't tell you how it's going to work out. I'm not even a dream interpreter. I can't tell you what's going on in that crazy dream you had last night because you ate too much dip at a housewarming party or whatever it might be, right? Hypothetically speaking. What I can tell you is this. Even when man has evil intentions, or you could take out man and say the enemy, right? That's what we do with Genesis 50, 21 a lot. When we reference it, we don't say that you intended to harm me. We say the enemy, right, meant it for my harm, but God intended it for my good. And I think that's very applicable. I think Satan definitely tried to destroy Joseph. He knew that Joseph had favor on his life, that he was in a family that was favored. And they, I'm going to snuff this thing out. And he had intentions for one thing, but God played that reverse. And he used them for Joseph's good and for God's glory. In the midst of your betrayal, in the midst of whoever has disappeared from your life, maybe for legitimate reasons of passing away, and it just hurts that they're gone, maybe for awful reasons of a relationship that's been severed or broken, whatever it is, in the midst of it, know this, God wants to protect you, and he will. God wants to provide for you, and he will. And God wants to bring you to a place where one day you look back on it and you see, wow, that even was worked for my good and for your glory. Amen? But God, what a beautiful, big but in Scripture. Would you pray with me, church?